Hey guys, welcome to this month's edition of the Brussels to Berlin podcast, your monthly dose of European politics from two Americans on either side of the Rhine. I'm Dave Keating from here in Brussels, Belgium. And I'm Tyson Barker. I am sitting in rainy Berlin. It's rainy here also. What are the odds? What a shock. <laughs> um, so we're going to bring you a special three-part podcast uh, this week. Three-fer. It's a, it's a departure from our normal twofer uh, format. So we're going to start off talking about the latest U.S. developments, which are uh, moving at a whirlwind pace. Uh, originally, we were going to talk about the uh, trade tariffs on steel and aluminum. But uh, now, of course, there's all kinds of new developments with Tillerson. So we'll talk about how all of that connects with uh, U.S. relations with Europe and then the future of the transatlantic relationship. Then we'll talk about the latest with the German coalition and how things are coming along there. And finally, yes. we'll talk about the Italian election. So lots to talk about. I uh, hope you'll stick with us for this 45 minutes. Yeah, 45 minutes. <laughs> I stick and guess at the time. We'll see. I don't think anyone will remember if it's not actually 45 <laughs> Okay, so let's start with uh, talking about the latest developments for the U.S. Maybe um, I'll start out by just kind of setting up uh, what happened uh, last week with the trade tariffs. Um, this, this subject has been something that's particularly rankled the European Union. Um, to give the short version, Trump has announced tariffs on imports of steel and alu aluminum, as we call it, or aluminium, as people in Europe call it. Uh, he has done so citing national security grounds, saying that a country that doesn't uh, have control or produce its own uh, steel and aluminium does, is not a real country, which is a, a really strange alt-right talking point that I don't quite understand. But um, the idea is that if the U.S. is dependent on imports of these materials, which are essential for making war, uh, then it would be unable to defend itself or act quickly in a military conflict. Um, of course, the uh, U.S.'s allies, such as Canada, Mexico, South Korea, Japan, the European Union, have said such a justification is absurd when it's applying to everyone, because, of course, uh, as allies, the EU and Canada, etc., should not pose any kind of military threat to the United States. Uh, so last week, the European Union preemptively, when the news came out that Trump was considering such tariffs, the EU preemptively announced that they would have a retaliatory list of tariffs on some products that are very iconic American products, um, not terribly significant to the European economy, but uh, I think done for symbolic value. So the items on the list are peanut butter, motorcycles, Levi's jeans. Uh, so if you're a middle-aged European planning on having a midlife crisis, you are in trouble where you're going to have to can, take can it I, to your can pocket. I, can I just add a couple things on, yeah. on why the Europeans said it? Well, first of all, if you don't mind, let me take a step back and talk about steel and aluminum. Yep. The 25% tariffs on steel and, and aluminum, which is an invocation of Section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act, something from 1962 has not been invoked uh, essentially since 2001, since the terrorist attacks on 9-11. And, and these kind of tariffs, even beyond national security invocations, haven't been uh, placed on any products uh, you know, since 2003 when the Bush administration did it, and it ended up ultimately being counterproductive. The U.S. has an 80,000 
job steal uh, labor market, uh, very acute and very powerful. And I think that that's what we need to talk about here. Because when you talk about trade, you're talking about hard politics. And the reason that Trump and others try to appeal to steel and aluminum is because that's that rust belt voter, those uh, white ethnic voters in states in the rust belt, like Pennsylvania and Ohio. And the retaliatory tariffs that the EU has announced that Malmstrom and especially Juncker has made a point of hammering on include Kentucky bourbon, i.e. the state of Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, yep. and Harley-Davidson motorcycles, i.e. motorcycles produced in the state of Wisconsin, the home state of Paul Ryan, the, uh, the Speaker of the House, they, and oranges from Florida, a crucial swing state currently governed primarily by Republicans. So what they're trying to do is really exercise a little bit of political pinch on those that would have the ability to change the policy and will feel the pain if the policy goes into effect. And as you mentioned, this worked last time when George W. Bush tried to uh, bring out these tariffs before the EU threatened retaliatory action. As the election was coming closer, Bush ended up dropping those tariffs. So this is an area where the EU really has muscle. Um, I think that the reason why the EU came out so strong on this last week is because there's been frustration here in the first year of the Trump presidency as uh, Trump was undermining the NATO military alliance, dropping out of the Paris Climate Accord. Europe was kind of powerless to head back. On the area of trade, Europe is actually quite powerful, and it's demonstrated that power before. Uh, and so they have the potential to really do economic damage to the U.S., and as you point out, political damage with these very targeted tariffs. But, of right, course, right. Uh, despite the Wait. threats, uh, Trump went ahead with uh, those tariffs uh, with, I guess, a temporary exemption for Canada and Mexico, but no exemption yeah. for Europe. But that is not... Um, necessarily going to remain the case. And this is a really interesting point. And you can see where the, the Trump uh, racketeering mind kind of goes to because, you know, they immediately go to a, I would say, and some have said an extortion place, including uh, some senior former DOD officials, uh, by exploring the possibility of providing exemptions for allies that meet the 2% mark in NATO. First of all, They've also talked about giving an exemption to the UK. First of all, obviously, that is legally impossible right. because the EU is a, seen in this format as one entity. So to provide an exemption to the UK would be to provide an exemption to all 28 EU member states. Second of all, it's not WTO compliant because this is not the nature of this type of exemption that you can, you can put conditionality based on how much you, defend, you spend on defense. Um, and just generally... Uh, you know, this approach of kind of a sort of Democles hanging over uh, any situation has become modus operandi for the way that the Trump administration conducts foreign policy. And you see it, I mean, actually, TPP and the Paris Climate Accords are kind of the exceptions because he withdrew from them unilaterally and there was a black and white option. But with things like the Iran negotiations, you know, what he likes to do, what the Trump administration likes to do, or commitments in NATO, is create, cloud the environment, create an, an, era, an area of uncertainty and unpredictability. And I think that that's what they're trying to do here. 
in the North American context, this is particularly acute because they're in the middle of renegotiating NAFTA. So basically what the administration is saying is the exemption stands for now, but if we don't get to a successful NAFTA renegotiation, they could be lifted. Uh, with the EU, I think he's trying to play a similar card, um, saying, you know, we need to, and he mentioned this in a tweet, makes very little sense, lower tariffs on a U.S. products being exported to the EU. Um, average tariffs for U.S. products into the EU are 3%. But if he's trying to get a deeper trade relationship with the, United, with the EU, then he could continue with TTIP negotiations, which were launched in the Obama administration. So it seems like he needs to be briefed on these policies. That doesn't seem likely, but um, it's just, it's a big fat mess. And I think we're going to see more of this because the attention to trade is really growing <laughs> with, with the president himself. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because, of course, he had all of this anti-free trade rhetoric during the campaign. But I think the thinking mm -hmm. was because he didn't do anything on trade in his first year, a lot of particularly congressional Republicans thought he had maybe just kind of forgotten about it and or had brought people in and the administration that uh, had talked him out of some of the things he was saying he would do on the campaign trail. And all of a sudden, these trade issues have returned with a vengeance. But like you say, it, it's not what he's saying is doesn't make any sense. For instance, when he was at the press conference with the Swedish prime minister last week and asserting that the European Union is very, very unfair and it's almost impossible to import goods uh, from the U.S. into the European Union. A, of course, that's not true. But B, if it was true... TTIP was the vehicle in order to make that not the case. And he's the one who right. dropped TTIP. Um, right. I mean, the president is obviously, uh, Trump is not a fan of multilateralism. Uh, he has his big trade, uh, you know, uh, big boom, big bang in the first year of his administration was withdrawing from TPP, which coincidentally was signed without the United States, the tra Trans-Pacific Partnership between 11 countries in Latin America, North America, and the, and the Pacific uh, on the day that he announced this decision to impose trade tariffs. So the, the world is trying to grapple with a trade order where the U.S. is no longer the guarantor. Um, the, in Berlin, there's a lot of talk about bringing the United States, because of these, these tariffs, before the WTO and having it uh, you know, hammered out in arbitration. Uh, that is, some people have described as a neutron bomb option, because if the WTO were to rule against the United States, it's expected that the U.S. would just kind of walk Do away from anyway. the table and say, you, you ruled this way, try to enforce it, as Andrew Jackson said to the Supreme Court when he was removing Indians from their land. I mean, and that would basically be the end of the efficacy of the WTO's, uh, you know, punitive measures, because the U.S. would just not acknowledge them and and that would be that and so, the wto doesn't have a natural enforcement mechanism like the eu for instance with the ecj you essentially it just kind of operates on trust that everyone's going to do the right thing because of the terms of their membership but there's no punishment mechanism for countries that don't do it so the right. u.s could walk That's away yeah. but the u.s is the yeah. guarantor as you say of this whole free trade system so if the u.s walks away then nobody's going to follow the rules and then the wto is completely ineffective. Right. 
I mean, you're, you're, you're totally defanging the WTO. I mean, the other big news, obviously, that you mentioned at the, the top of the, the podcast is Rex Tillerson's unceremonious uh, uh, dispatchal, uh, dispatchment from the State Department today, which we all learned about in a tweet. Um, what do you think that this means for the U.S.-European relationship? I mean, obviously, people here were not thrilled to hear about this. Uh, Federica Mogherini, the EU high rep for foreign affairs, was just speaking at the German Marshall Fund uh, Brussels Forum last week. And it was interesting. She was asked about Rex Tillerson and how often she speaks to him. Uh, and she, I think, as I recall, she said, I just talked to him two weeks ago. But she was asked in kind of a roundabout way, is there any point to talking to Rex Tillerson? Because, mm. you know, he may have just been officially fired, but everyone has known that the president has not been listening to him for a very long time. And, and frequently he would, you know, make visits and say things and then Trump would say the opposite or undermine him. So the feeling here in Europe is that uh, he was not really speaking for the United States when he came here to speak. At the same time, he was kind of a rational person, a rational person that people here could deal with. And so he will definitely, it, it is alarming people here that he is departing. I think particular circumstances of his departure are particularly worrisome because his firing comes a day after he took the opposite line of the White House in talking about the Russian assassination last week on the streets of the UK. Yeah, yeah I, I don't actually think that this case told total water. In fact, in the, in the uh, you know, impromptu press conference that uh, President Trump held today, and then the subsequent White House statement, uh, he said he, com he they they're completely latched up with Theresa May, and the the, the White House statement said you, he first of all Trump himself said the UK is saying that they suspect that the Russians are probably behind this, and I accept that as fact. So that's what the president said, and then the White House released a statement, basically kind of echoing that and saying that the Russians had a certain amount of time to prove that they weren't involved. So. I don't see the intrigue, the Russian intrigue here um, that some people started out with seeing. I think that the truth is, is that the two men had a pretty deep antipathy. Uh, um, Tillerson is uh, much more of a technocrat. I mean, he's an engineer by background. He's a company man. He ru runs on precision and professionalism. And that doesn't work in the Trump world, which is much more populist and emotive. But let's be honest, uh, not only was Tillerson a non-entity globally, but he was deeply disrespected in his own department, where he had done so much to uh, essentially demolish morale. I mean, you had a, a total uh, exodus of senior foreign service officers from the State Department, um, a derision of his decisions, which are reflected all over the map, to downgrade democracy as a value that the United States should pro promote abroad, um, and a real lack of any kind of uh, strategic clarity. I don't think you saw very much from uh, Rex Tillerson. So when he came out tonight or today and gave his valedictory remarks, he basically, you know, his farewell address, he, he did two things. One, he tried to list his accomplishments, which were, I would say, pretty much non-existent. And then he tried to say, and particularly speaking to the military, uh, he said, I have a good relationship with General Gunford, 
from the Joint Chiefs. I have a good relationship with Mattis. We at the State Department, DOD, military, we all swear an oath to the Constitution, and we need to renew those vows to that oath. And he did not mention uh, Donald Trump once in his speech. But he basically made clear our loyalties to the Constitution, not to the president. So what do you think? Why now, then? Does it have more to do with Korea, actually, than anything with Russia? Well, that's something that, uh, that Trump himself said. He said, you know, now that he's cooking on Korea, uh, he wanted more clarity and more uh, a team that he felt like he could trust. That's essentially what he said. But, you know, there's a lot of doubt whether or not his Korea policy is going to be linear. I mean, already there are North Korea is not responding to the overtures uh, sent out by the State Department. So it's unclear whether or not that will actually have the kind of impact that uh, or the kind of um, that justification that uh, President Trump tried to give it. Um, but in the in the Euro Atlantic context, um, I think that if Pompeo, his designated successor, comes into office, there are actually, interestingly enough, opportunities. For one, if, if the president, frankly, likes the guy, um, you know, you might have morale go up in the State Department, which had become, frankly, a backwater. For because they policy. would feel that their work would be relevant again? Right, because if, if, the, if Pompeo has the president's ear, um, perhaps he can, uh, you know, create a power vertical to which their work adds value to government policy. The second thing is that Pompeo, as CIA director, has been pretty, I mean, he's kind of, con he's conservative, obviously. He's, I would say, borderline neocon. You know, he's kind of a liberal internationalist interventionist type with a military background. But he believes, first of all, he believes that Russia had an impact on the U.S. elections and has been uh, pursuing active measures in Europe. He believes in the value of NATO. He... And I think he's willing to speak out more forcefully on those issues than Rex Tillerson was. So do you think actually in Europe, I mean, I think the initial reaction here today was one of alarm. I think particularly with the timing in relation to the Russian developments in the UK, it may prove that that uh, was not uh, a factor in the dismissal. But the, the reaction here was definitely negative. But do you think as people kind of stop and think about this here in Europe, might they conclude, actually, we may, if we can get someone in the State Department that actually can speak for the administration, this might be a better arrangement? I, I think so. I mean, if you can get somebody who has the president's ear and the president's respect in a similar way that Jim Mattis does at the Defense Department, then you have a partner that you can deal with. And right now, the truth is, is that they didn't in Rex Tillerson. The worrying alternative is that this is the first in what will end up being a kind of bloodbath where you'll have, you know, unceremonious uh, firings or dispatchals of so many other officials like the White House National Security Advisor, H.R. Uh, McMaster. And you'll bring in people like John Bolton, who a lot of Europeans remember from the Iraq War um, and the White House foreign policy or the administration foreign policy will become a lot more bellicose. I think, yeah, and I think the other very, the thing that people are worried about here is just the lack of predictability in the administration. 
um, yeah. you know, between the, the very confusing situation with the tariffs last week and then this week with the the Secretary of State being suddenly ousted. It, it adds to this feeling of chaos in Washington and that essentially people here don't know who to talk to, who can actually speak for the United States. Actually, in the same uh, German Marshall Fund event last week, when she was asked about Rex Tillerson and some of the comings and goings in the White House, she noted, you know, once upon a time, Henry Kissinger asked, uh, who, if I want to call Europe, who do I call? Well, she said, uh, you could ask that question about the United States now. If they wanted to call the United States, who do they call? And, uh, there's this feeling now in Europe that there's no one who can speak for the United States except Donald Trump. And even what he says changes radically from day to day. And so there's no way mm. to get a, a firm understanding of where Washington is on any given issue. And that makes it yep. very difficult to conduct the transatlantic relationship. Yeah, I agree. So let's move on to the next bit of the podcast where we are going to talk about the German coalition formation at long last after many, many months. It's all coming together over there in Berlin. Um, People here in Brussels are very interested, although I I would say people here in Brussels aren't paying super close attention, and I I would include myself in that, unfortunately. So I am very curious to hear all the latest about uh, what uh, has happened with yeah. that coalition formation. So what are the main so things we should it. know? So Abemos uh, Groco, you know, the white smoke has come up. We have a gro- uh, grand coalition. They just signed the grand coalition contract yesterday. Merkel is to be sworn in with her new cabinet tomorrow. Um, so we have a coalition between Merkel's uh, Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats now led jointly or concurrently, essentially, by Andrea Nahles um, and uh, Olaf Scholz, who will become the finance minister, the former mayor of Hamburg. Um, so this, you know, it's taken six months to get here. We had a, um, a Jamaica coalition agreement tested, which really excited the German people, but kind of went off the rails after Christian Lindner from the Liberal Democrats pulled the plug. And the SPD, the uh, center-left party, the Social Democrats, put this to a referendum to their party base. So they said, their party base, we've negotiated a coalition agreement. You can look at it. You can vote. And it seemed like it could be a nail-biter. At one point, the entire... (laughs) Uh, roster of potential ministers kind of fell apart. Martin Schulz, a former Brussels bubble alum, um, claimed the foreign ministry for himself, and it led to a major uproar uh, in the party base who felt like he had kind of not earned that mm-hmm. crown jewel position. Um, so he immediately stepped back, and now he's kind of essentially a backbencher. People are very uh, worried he's coming back here to Brussels. Nobody wants him. Maybe. Oh, gosh. Um, uh, Zygmunt Gabriel, who is the, was the foreign minister as of, well, still is until tomorrow, um, you know, made some inopportune remarks. And he was also summarily dispatched, but he's kind of a relic of a, the Schroeder era. So they, they put it to a vote, and the vote passed by 66% within, within the, uh, the Social Democratic base, 78% of voter participation from that base. So, I mean, amazing participation. The discussion and debate was really, really happening. 
And now we're on the verge of having a new coalition. And, you know, one of the, the points that were pushed by, let's say, the, the young, the youth auxiliaries of these parties. And it's important to say in Germany, um, everything is kind of institutionalized pretty heavily. And the uh, pathway to power within the, the, the very, very regimented party system is through these youth auxiliaries. So in the CDU, it's something called the Junge Union or the Young Union. And in the SPD, it's called Jusos or the Young Socialists or Social Democrats. And the leadership in both of these said, we really need to reinvent these parties. I mean, the results of these elections showed that these, that our two Volksparteien are dwindling away, that people are really unhappy with them. And we need fresh blood, new ideas, new faces. So we have a lot of uh, new faces. I mean, the first one, I guess he's new-ish, Heiko Maas, who is the, uh, was the justice minister, probably most well-known outside of Germany for his anti-hate speech law that kind of hit platforms and makes them you know, regulate what comes on platforms much more closely or face punitive fines, will be the next foreign minister. So he's kind of an unknown figure. Um, in that space, he hasn't really been uh, well known, you know, creating issues on that. He's not known for his foreign policy expertise, but we have a lot of new faces. Katharina Bali, a, a German Brit, will be the next justice minister. Uh, a woman named uh, Franziska Giffey, who is the former mayor of Neukölln, a region, a very small Bezirk in Berlin will be the next uh, family minister. Um, all these people kind of under 30, that's on the SPD side. And then on the CDU side, Merkel tried to kind of consolidate her, let's say, her people within her party. You know, for Merkel 4, she just wanted to say, I'm going to kind of close ranks with people that I trust and I know, people like Ursula von der Leyen, uh, people like Peter Altmaier, Ursula von der Leyen will stay defense minister. Uh, Peter Altmaier will stay in or go to the economic ministry. And she faced a revolt from her backbenches who said, no, this is the status quo. You know, what we're seeing coming out of this, this new coalition is essentially the status quo. How do we shake things up? And the truth is, is that when she first proposed her minister, ministry positions, she didn't include the person everybody knows is kind of the the hot star in Berlin, a guy named Jens Spahn, who used to head the Jung Union. So he used his proxies to basically force him into a ministry. But she's kind and of... And we've talked about Jens Spahn before on this podcast, I should point out. Exactly. Exactly. But she kind of checked that by bringing in a woman named Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, who is currently probably the most popular um, governor of a German land, Saarland, on the border with France, to come in and lead the party. So the two of them are kind of seen as the Dauphins of the CDU, just looking forward. So tomorrow we have a new coalition. Uh, what can we expect? Um, the truth is, is that there aren't, there's a lot of rhetoric in the coalition agreement, which is about 170 pages. It's, in, it's important to note that these things used to be about four pages. Now it's 170 pages. But there is very little feeling in Berlin that things are actually going to move on these things. Um, little things on the margins might happen in odd places. For example, Horst Seehofer, 
the former governor of Bavaria, who will now be the interior minister, has renamed the ministry interior and homeland ministry, Heimat Ministerium. And the idea there is that it's supposed to foster German identity and German Germanness through a promotion of German culture, German song groups, German sports clubs, that kind of thing. Um, but the big ideas on digitization, which is the buzzword you hear everywhere, there isn't much meat there yet. I mean, and all of this really points to the the major defanging of Angela Merkel, right? I mean, her position in that she was overrided with her ministerial picks. I mean, what is this next term going to look like? Uh, for instance, you know, for people here in Brussels who are used to a very strong Angela Merkel, is, is the situation now going to be very different? Is she not going to be able to have as much of a leadership role in Europe, for instance? I, I would say the jury is really still out on that. I mean, the truth is, is that, you know, there was a period of deep uncertainty. And when the Jamaica coalition fell apart, it started to feel like Merkel was kind of the Merkel era was unraveling. And with the, the passage of the SPD of the Grand Coalition talks, you know, the, the, the vote, and uh, with the formation of this new government, she's got a honeymoon. And this is something that doesn't really exist in, in some countries like the United States anymore where the politics is so polarized. But she really has kind of risen back up. She's got a period where people are like, we want to give this a shot. Hmm. A majority of Germans are right now optimistic about the next government coming into play. So the question is, how does she use that? And, you know, Merkel has certain characteristics that have kind of defined her over her 12 years in office. Um, one is just kind of waiting for opportune moments to push, I would say, somewhat radical policies through very, very quickly without much debate that tend to be um, incited by particular events. You think about Fukushima and how that led to the Inagivinda, or you think about the closing of the Hungarian borders and how that led to the, uh, the refugee, um, the open door refugee policy, or you think about the shoot down of MH17 in Ukraine and how that led to a completely different approach to sanctions on Russia. I mean, that's kind of her approach is to wait for those moments where German public opinion consolidates very quickly and very hard around a position and then she kind of occupies it really quickly and sits there. Um, it's unclear if she can like have a vision and then see it through and then communicate it to the broader German public. I mean, she is, let's be honest, not a great communicator. <laughs> and so people have talked about her fourth term. If you talk about themes of her, of her chancellorships, her fourth term being about reinvigorating the European project um, it's lost a little bit of steam. Um, and I think that there isn't as much appetite here in Berlin for the kind of offering that Macron is bringing to the table. Yeah, I mean, I think what you hear a lot here in Brussels is, oh, Angela Merkel is now going to be focused on securing her legacy. And so she's really going to be a lot more bold now with um, I mean, this. She'll be a, a good working partner for Macron because she will want people to remember her as the woman who weathered the crisis in Europe and then set up the new structures, the new foundations that Macron wants to set up after these citizens' dialogues he's going to conduct over the next year. But the problem is, of course, she can't do that alone. And and something that many a French president has forgotten is that the German chancellor is not as powerful as the French president, and they're only as powerful as the system allows them to be. Uh, and so if she 
doesn't have that kind of strength at home. It doesn't matter how much she wants to secure her legacy. Uh, she can't do it. Do, do you think, though, that this new crop of ministers that she's not as close with, that she's brought into the cabinet, are they open to some kind of more ambitious European restructuring, or are they generally pretty opposed? I think, obviously, Jens Spahn is not a fan, but uh, I'm thinking of some of these SPD people. Are they are they a little more open to this type of thing? Um, I don't think that, that the European idea has captured the minds of this up-and-coming generation of political leadership in Germany like it might have 15 years ago. Mm. I mean, if you talk to people here in Berlin, the word on everybody's lips is tech policy or digitization. Um, you know, people are nervous that Germany is falling behind in the tech race and that, you know, prior to, let's say, the past five years, it didn't really matter because they could continue to dominate in places, in things like engineering, uh, in appliances, in auto, and those kind of things. But increasingly, these companies are becoming tech companies. I mean, you can't think of Daimler or Bosch as auto or appliance companies anymore. You have to think of them as tech companies. And they're worried that they're going to lose their, you know, their competitiveness. So for, for Germany, tech policy is becoming competitiveness policy, is becoming economic policy, and that's what people are really worried about. I mean, the European question, it really needed somebody who was a political entrepreneur, who was willing to give it that lift. I think like that Macron, there was like a German about, Macron. <laughs> or in a in a if in such an a thing could exist, an alternative <laughs> universe, uh, a better Martin Schulz. But you know, mm. <laughs> clearly Martin Schulz made the decision uh, last year, or right around this time, not to run on Europe. You know, he ran on being the mayor of a small town and not on the European idea, and only started to push the idea of a United States of Europe after the election. After the elections yeah. had taken place, where he had no mandate whatsoever to do so. So. <laughs> I don't. I think you will get, you know, some window dressing on uh, the the Franco-German engine. I think there will be a, something called a European finance minister, but whether or not that person will have any power or not is to be determined. And I'd be rather skeptical. Well, speaking of long drawn out coalition formations, let's move on to the Italian election results. As long as these German coalition formation talks have gone on, we could be looking at even longer for Italy or a new election, which wouldn't be as crazy for Italy as it would have been for Germany. Um, now, this is an election near and dear to my heart because I, as an Italian citizen, was able to vote. Uh, no prizes for guessing who I voted but, but for. Of you, but of course you didn't because you're a, an objective journalist. You <laughs> never want to... Journalists can vote. Journalists can vote. Uh, But of course, uh, it's an odd situation for me because obviously I didn't grow up in Italy and have a mostly outsider's perspective on the political system. But uh, I I find the result really, really intriguing. Um, I know I would say people here in Brussels, in terms of the reaction the next day, the five-star thing didn't alarm people that much. And that's partly because people here were ready for it. Five Star, which is this populist, um, uh, very new party uh, established in Italy by a comedian, Beppe Grillo. Uh, They have gone through many iterations. Their political ideology is not 
really set yet, you could say, to put it generously. Um, but they've but been... They, they also submit things to, uh, like, essentially constant referendum, yes. right? Yes, I mean, their that's, that's their big thing is direct democracy. Um, yeah. So they, it's, like it's a pi- movement. The pirate parties of yore. Yeah, they, they describe themselves as a movement rather than a party. Um, and they came in as the largest party uh, with a little over 30% uh, in the election. Now, that's about where they had been polling leading up to the election. So people here in Brussels weren't terribly shocked by that. They were ready for it. What did shock, upset, and scare people was the success of the Northern League. Um, now, unlike Five Star, which is kind of a new entity and people aren't really sure what to make of them, people know Northern League. Um, this is a, you know, let's be honest about it, a borderline fascist party, which its raison d'etre is separating the north of Italy they, from the south of Italy. Didn't they change their name to the La Liga? Yeah, so now they're the League. Aren't they trying uh, to be pretension? Their pretension is all of Italy. Yes, exactly. So in this last election, this is quite interesting, they've shifted their focus uh, to no longer being about representing the interests of the wealthier northern part of Italy at the expense of the south, uh, but actually to be appealing to all of Italians and focusing on immigrants. So basically they've taken their demonization of southern Italians and just shifted it further south to Arabs and Africans. Uh, and for some people in the south, this worked. I mean, they they didn't do well in the south by any means, but they did get a number of votes basically for the first time ever. And this is partly because of this rebranding. They're no longer the Northern League. They're just the League. Um, But I I will say there's been a lot of articles about how well they did in the South. I think it's been a little exaggerated. People in the South aren't that stupid. And they have memories. And they remember what the Northern League used to say about them. And just because they're now saying it about people a little further South, not too many people fell for that, although some did. Um, But what alarmed people here in Brussels is that the Northern League has been in government before. They're part of the traditional center-right coalition with Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia, uh, but they were always the junior partner in that coalition. They were usually the very, very junior partner. In this election, they came higher than Forza Italia for the first time ever, uh, and quite a bit higher. And so the yeah. if, if this traditional center-right coalition is formed again, first of all, it can't form by itself. It needs the help of some additional parties. That will mean parties even further to the right. So like the real deal, actual fascists, um, Brothers of Italy, some independent uh, independent MPs, some some really, really small parties, uh, they could cobble something together. But the largest party in that block would be the Northern League, uh, med by, led by Matteo Salvini, who has said some really, really horrible things um, about uh, they, immigrants and they minorities. Still could, they still couldn't get over the 42% necessary to create a majority in the Italian system, it's right? It's possible I mean, they could with some very small parties, but it would be extremely difficult. You're right. Um, the, so the, the options now for coalition formation, assuming that the main center-left party, which was really decimated in this election, this was the party, uh, the Democratic Party, that was in power before. The the Hillary of Italy. (laughs) He so is. He so is. Yeah, this is Matteo Renzi, who fell on his sword uh, after calling a referendum. Uh, Yeah, I'm not sure about that, but he 
called a referendum on reforming Italy's constitution and then very foolishly, in my opinion, uh, staked his own premiership on the results and so said, uh, if this, you know, rather technocratic, if these rather technocratic changes are rejected at the ballot box, I will resign. So, of course, then the, the referendum was no longer about the actual changes on the ballot, but was about Matteo Renzi and whether you liked him or not. Uh, and so in those types of elections, the more energized people tend to be the angrier people. So those were the people that turned out and uh, they voted it down by a very convincing margin. And he, true to his word, stepped down. So we've had um, caretaker prime ministers since then. Uh, and in this election, he ran again, which again, I just one of many aspects of Italian politics I don't understand. But he uh, stood for the leadership again for the Democratic Party, was their candidate. The party was totally decimated. He has stepped down, but he will be the kind of caretaker leader of the Democrats in the meantime, and he has ruled out any coalition with anybody, basically. He says they need to go into opposition. Of course, that's what Martin Schulz said with the SPD in Germany, so we'll see if he actually sticks to that. But So the only options available now are a five-star coalition with the Northern League, um, which would mean would put the five star as the largest party in that coalition by far. Um, that would theoretically at least mean that Luigi Di Maio, the 31 year old leader of five star, would become the prime minister of Italy. Obviously, the youngest prime minister the country has ever had, but not the youngest prime minister Europe has had. Um, but, but beating beating uh, Kurz in in Austria. Yes, just barely 33, so yeah, 33 or 34. Um, but Estonia had a 29-year-old prime minister for a little bit. So what was it? I can't remember his name. Uh, but he, he, he was 29, but he looked 19. Uh, but anyway, so that's one option. Then there is the option for a Forza Italia, Northern League, and some other parties barely scraping by the 42% number. Um of course, with that coalition, uh, Northern League would be the largest party. I'm told by Italians that uh, Matteo Salvini just couldn't be prime minister in that situation. But I am not totally convinced by this because no one's given me a really convincing explanation for why he wouldn't logically be the prime minister in that there's, situation. There's, there's, a, there's a great Austrian example, obviously, which is the Wolfgang Schussel uh, um, play. Which is, you know, in the early aughts, uh, Wolfgang Schussel, who led the center right, or excuse me, uh, ÖVP, the uh, Volkspartei, which was the center right party, basically they came in third place, but he convinced the FPÖ, this crypto fascist party, to form a coalition, but said that he needed to be prime minister in order to bring them into government, to kind of mollify them. I mean, it's it's definitely possible, um, but. We'll see. But, you know, I've, I've read a lot about this kind of the overtures that the five star movement and Luigi Di Maio is making to the to the league. And, you know, when you read about the package of policies that are being proposed, it seems one, it's it's a big giveaway. It's it's kind of like if the lira were still around, but the lira isn't still around. So it's a lot of, um, you know, universal basic income, tax cuts, uh, basically massive deficit driving policies. And it's a big uh, middle finger to Brussels. I mean, is Brussels really the boogeyman for Italian politics these days? Well, I, this, the Northern League is definitely the more Eurosceptic 
party of all of these parties. Five Star is a really mixed bag. I've watched these. They they also came in highest in the European election in 2014, and they came in with this huge crop of members of the European Parliament. And I interviewed a lot of them at that time, and I've worked with a lot of these guys. And they're not crazy, and they're also not anti-European for a variety of maybe, reasons. Maybe they, maybe they like the Brussels lifestyle. <laughs> they've, maybe, they've they like, become, well, maybe look, they like the Brussels paycheck. These people, they are the Italian MEPs are the most well-paid in the European Parliament. That's because the salaries match the salaries of the national parliamentarians. And believe it or not, Italian MPs are the best paid in Europe. Just one of the most yeah. uh, nauseating statistics when it comes to European politics. Uh, but... These these people that I've I've talked to here for for a variety of strange reasons they ended up in the Europe of Freedom and Democracy group, which is Nigel Farage's group with UKIP. Uh, it was always a very uncomfortable fit, uh, and actually at one point they applied to join the Aldi group of liberals, which is uh, one of the most pro-European groups in the Parliament. Um, and eventually, Guy Verhofstadt, the leader of that group, was in favor of that, but eventually he was overruled by the, the liberals who were uncomfortable with Five Star. But it really just goes to show how much their ideology is not set. And uh, interestingly, over the past week, Luigi De Maio has made a bunch of comments uh, saying that some of the language in the party in the past, they used to call for a referendum on the euro, uh, but for years now they've completely ruled that out. They've said, oh, absolutely not, we will never call a referendum on the euro. Um, he uh, said that the Five Star, if they were in government, would push forward with economic measures in agreement with Brussels and not against it. He also said that Brussels would be his first foreign trip as prime minister. So, so far, he is sounding a very, very pro-European tone. That being said, they are absolutely against austerity. They are against the European semester exercise. But in that sense, they are completely aligned with Macron. So really, they are in... In several ways, they are in the pro-European zeitgeist of the moment, if you consider that Macron zeitgeist. And if you think about the outgoing, austerity-obsessed, um, center-right dominance of the European response to the crisis, led by Angela Merkel, who is now severely weakened, they I, many in Brussels do see them as a partner that could potentially be worked with. Um, but of course, it's a big question mark. We don't know what they're but really going to be like in government. What you're talking about essentially is different um, interpretations of the European social contract. Hmm. And these things are, I wouldn't say immutable, but they haven't changed so much or they change, tend to change only cosmetically. So what you're saying is Italy is returning to its kind of more southern roots, which is something that, you know, in the end, got Berlusconi ousted by the ECB in 2011. Um, uh, I'm not sure if it was policy that got Berlusconi elected, more of a lack of confidence in his leadership. I mean, it, it was his very unpredictable leadership style and his very... I mean, he received, the, the, the ECB sent a letter, which was leaked, uh, basically saying that you know Berlusconi need to impose serious austerity measures, which they weren't willing or able to do. Yeah, because you know Forza Italia or uh, what was it Pop, Pop, uh, Popolo della Libertà at the time was just not a. I don't want to say it wasn't a serious party, but it was a party that wasn't willing to deal. It wasn't willing to give you know hard policies vegetables 
uh, in the Italian context. Yeah, and, I, I think not for ideological reasons, but for you know impotence reasons. That government was not really capable of delivering the reforms demanded by the ECB. Right. right. And would that be possible with uh, the constellation that we have today? I, I think that they've all promised uh, essentially a lot of you know uh, populist policies that are meant more to please their their base rather than to reform the Italian system to make it more competitive. Yeah, I mean, of course, there's a lot of people in Italy who think the system is unreformable. But if anyone could do it, it's a kind of outside party that would not be beholden to entrenched political interests. That being said, they don't have a majority. So unless a new election is called and Five Star is able to get a majority, they're going to have to to be in coalition with a, a you know, longer term more traditional party, and that may make uh, some of these these efforts not not possible. Again, of course, the, the big difficulty with Five Star is we have no idea what they're about, how they would govern. The experiences that Five Star politicians have had in local government, for instance, in the Rome mayorship, uh, have been a disaster. Uh, just kind of a, a lack of experience, a lack of planning, um, and so I think that's that's what people are worried about. And here in Brussels, people are worried about the inexperience and lack of ideological coherence of Five Star, but they're not worried about Five Star being anti-European per se, mm-hmm. which I think is the way this is being covered in Anglo-Saxon media in the US and the UK. Five Star is portrayed as an anti-European party that was elected over anger at Brussels. I mean, that is just absolute nonsense the eu featured very very little in this electoral campaign and a lot of the motivation for the five-star vote most of it is driven by an anger at italian politics at the italian establishment and there's many five-star voters i've talked to several of them who don't view their vote as an anti-EU vote. In fact, they view it as an anti-Rome vote. And these are the type of Italians, and I know a lot of them, who would prefer more EU control over Italy because they don't trust their own politicians to run things. Um, so I think so, it's... So, wh- so where do you see uh, you know, policies or proposals or you know, platform issues that Five Star ran on that Brussels or Angela Merkel would say... That is a refreshing change from what we usually see in Italian politics. I'm not sure I could point to anything that Angela Merkel would be reassured or refreshed by unless they could bring more of a a popular mandate to some of these changes. Uh, Because one of the problems with Berlusconi and why he was eventually unseated was not just the the uncertainty and the, the lack of power was because of his immense unpopularity in Italy for obvious reasons. Um, Now, obviously, Five Star isn't universally loved by any means, um, but, you know, they're they're mistrusted and there's a lot of people who really don't like them. But, um, you know, a 31-year-old dynamic young prime minister could win people over, I think, fairly quickly. And that may be useful for Berlin and Brussels in having a government in Rome that can break the sclerosis that has plagued Italian Ooh. politics for decades. I mean, that's really the problem is that, you know, if let's say there was a more traditional center-right coalition 
that had won this election. I, I'm, it, I don't even know what Brussels' favorite outcome here would have been. I suppose a, a, a Democratic Party outright win, but of course that wasn't a possibility. And so, you know, maybe if you had Forza Italia do well and you had a traditional center-right coalition as has existed in the past, uh, it was said that Berlusconi wanted to appoint uh, uh, or handpick uh, Antonio Tajani, who's currently the president of the European Parliament, as the prime minister. You know, Brussels would say, okay, great, uh, Tajani, it's obviously pro-European, he'd be there in Rome. But would people actually have had faith that that result would have changed anything in Italy, that you know, Italy wouldn't have continued down the path that it's it's going down. I think, you know, Tajani isn't known here in Brussels as being a very effective politician. Uh, so I don't think I don't think any of the other possibilities for the outcome of this election were very reassuring to Brussels either. And I do think people here have an open mind about De Maio and about Five Star, even though they are very, very anxious about what this means. Mm. Well, it's going to be something to watch. I mean, one would think that, for example, anti-corruption would be something they could really hit, but I'm, I'm somewhat pessimistic that Five Star, given its local uh, track record, will be able to do that at the national level. Yeah, maybe that's, we should. Uh, like with what you say, with the with their their focus has been on anti-corruption, and yet when they've been in governments, it's you know kind of inevitably there have been uh, kind of corruption scandals. So we'll see. Uh, it's we. I think it's very likely we're looking at new elections in Italy, but um, it's going to be, even if we get a government out of this election, it's going to be many, many months maybe giving Germany a run for its money. Okay, well, thanks everybody for making it all the way to the end of the podcast with our mammoth marathon three-part series. Uh, lots going oh, on right now. Uh, we... Uh, thank you for listening. If you like the podcast, rate and review it on the iTunes podcast store. And we will see you next month for another exciting edition of the Brussels to Berlin podcast.